Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello, and welcome to episode 10, the 10th anniversary of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to have a conversation with literary critic Scott Esposito about the only novel written by the early 20th century poet Rainer Maria Rilke. The novel is called The Notebooks of Malte Laurids Brigga, and it was published, somewhat to my surprise, in 1910. I say I was surprised by this publishing date because, as a work of literature, it seems well before its time. Although, if one were to look at it within the context of the visual art of its period, you could perhaps see how it would fit into the pre-World War I avant-garde. This particular snippet from the narrator in the opening pages... Electric trolleys speed clattering through my room. Cars drive over me. A door slams. Somewhere a window pane shatters on the pavement. I can hear its large fragments laugh, and its small one giggle gives the impression of a George Gross painting, or an expressionist canvas by Oskar Kokoschka. As for the narrator himself, he brought me back to another time altogether, to the works of the 18th century artist F.X. Messerschmitt, who was known for his many sculptures of hyper-expressive faces, any one of which might have belonged to the hyper-expressive and hypersensitive narrator of the novel, Malte Lauritz Brigge. There's not much I could say to prepare you for a book like this, it is truly a rare bird, and while its creation of a world seen exclusively through the warped lenses of its narrator has since been imitated, the intensity of its visions has not been matched. And that is what makes up the core of this book, the intensity of the narrator's engagement with the world, processed through short scenes, one following another after another, in no particular or at least no discernible order. It's a trip through the mind of a person living in extremis, at the edge of things, most notably at the edge of his social sphere and his mental sanity. As we read this book, we meet the people that Malte meets and recall the things that Malte recalls. There's little more to it than that in a conventional sense, and that is perhaps the point. Rilke doesn't want his reader to follow a plot or sort out what might come next. Rather, he wants the reader to dwell in the loosely constructed, vividly imagined world that Malte inhabits. And what's that world like? That's what we'll talk about with Scott Esposito next. Scott Esposito, welcome to Burning Books. Thank you. I know you primarily as a critic, but maybe you could introduce yourself? Sure. I have the blog, conversational reading. I edit the website, The Quarterly Conversation. I also work in a press called Two Lines Press. I'm a senior editor with this journal of translation that we do there called Two Lines. And we also publish books, the most recent of which was uh, The Fat of Organa Books by Jonathan Patel, which came out in November. And it's kind of these four novellas slash stories that he wrote for this creation publisher called Fat of Organa. So we put them all together into one book. People know him, obviously, for the kindly ones, which was this gigantic, freaky, 
World War II thing, and these are really just the opposite. Evanescent and about art. I mean, they also have a lot of bodily stuff and some horror, which is kind of, I guess, what he's obsessed with, for better or worse, but, you know, the, the feel of them is very different from the kinds of what. So let me ask you a question about your literary taste, and I'll preface it by saying that anyone who loves books will love a variety of work, and based on my reading of your blog, I can see that's the case with you. But I'm wondering, is there a type of book or a kind of material that you're particularly drawn to as a critic? Definitely, you know, there's a certain kind of book that when I see it, it's got kind of an existentialist view of the world. It probably is combining genres. The narrator is probably autobiographical to an extent. Version of the author's persona has got all those elements. It's probably got a bit of a poetic logic to it. It's got very beautiful, strong language. The kind of language where there's not a lot of mushiness, where each word is really being very carefully considered. You know, all those elements combine into these books. You know, when we just kind of read the first few pages, you think, oh, this is a member of this tribe. Which is a nice introduction to the tone, the content, the general sense of reading the notebooks of Malte Lauer and Spriga. Um, now, I would venture that most people know the name Rainer Maria Rilke, but I don't know how many people know that he wrote a novel. Uh, certainly he wrote prose, but this novel, although it's undergone a number of translations, I didn't know about it, it's totally under the radar for me, and I'm interested in literature from that period. So I'm wondering if you could contextualize it uh, for the listeners. If you were to create a thematic bookshelf, for instance, and I'm not saying that you're one of those people who would, where would this novel sit? Who would this novel be hanging out with? First of all, to go back to something you said, I like, I like the fact of its strengths, because you're right, Rilke is known as a poet, and this is more or less the only novel that he wrote. So, I mean, for those reasons, it kind of stands out already. Mm -hmm. I mean, and when you say, you know, where would you categorize it? I like the fact that I can put this book on the shelf by itself, and it's just there, and it it has kind of a power and an intensity just being just that one book on the shelf. In terms of the kind of writers that I feel like belong in that constellation, Pessoa definitely leaps to mind right away. A lot of the things that Rilke is talking about in here are sorts of things that Pessoa really fixated over in his books, the whole idea that this writer, Malta, who is the protagonist of this whole thing, you know, he's a second persona of Rilke's, and obviously that's something that Pessoa did a lot with. So, I mean, I see a lot of common elements there. This, this book is definitely foreshadowing a lot of writers that came maybe 20, 30, 40 years later. I see a lot of Beckett in this book. I see some Borges. Uh, you know, I see other modernists. There's definitely a lot of kind of Virginia Woolf. Uh, I guess you could say there's some Newt Hampson in terms of what this narrator, the, the life he lives, the the whole fact of the way his head works or doesn't work. Rope was the first to put a lot of this on the page and show people how these sorts of things could be written. Let me go back to the name Pessoa, and for those for whom the name is new, uh, Fernando Pessoa is a mid-20th century Portuguese poet. Um, now, there are a lot of ways of reading the notebooks, not least because the structure is not, or at least to me, was not recognizable. There's no story, per se, or progress, as you would conventionally define it. The reader rarely asks, what's going to happen next? One thing the reader 
does encounter in this book is a lot of characters, and that's what brings me back to Pessoa. Pessoa had a number of heteronyms under which he wrote poems, but they were not just false names, they were fully developed personalities whose separate worlds Pessoa inhabited to write his poems. Now, at a certain point in this book, I got a sense that every character Malte meets is actually Malte, imagining himself as another character, which is what brings Pessoa back into the picture. I'm wondering if you had a similar experience, and if so, what you thought that meant. That's definitely a way to read the book. I mean, I guess you could look at it in two different ways. This guy may be crazy, and he may be kind of projecting aspects of himself out into the world that he's then writing about. Or maybe he's incredibly obsessed with these things in his head, and so he looks at this person, and this person becomes an interpretation of this malady in his mind. And he, he goes and looks at this thing, and this thing reminds him of this incident that happened when he was a little boy. And I guess that would be more the way that I would read it. I mean, in terms of the structure, I think you're absolutely right. And that's, that's to me, is one of the amazing things about this book, that it really, it really lacks any kind of conventional novelistic structure, but there's a really strong feeling of unity that all this stuff really belongs into a book together. So then what holds it together is a certain consistency of style, which is what you could call Malta's outlook. And figuring out that outlook, or sorting through it, is one of the things you do as a reader of this book. Now, it's clear Malta thinks of himself as nuts. He undergoes electroshock therapy, and there's all kinds of references and allusions to hospitals and diseases. But while Malta's on the edge, I get the distinct sense that Rilke is saying, that's normal. That being on the edge is actually normal. And I found that a rather contemporary thing to hear, that being crazy is par for the course. I think that is very contemporary. That's probably one of the ways in which this book was visionary. But I think it's very true to the world that this character comes from. There's this one scene when he's a child, and this ghost, who apparently all the adults in the room around him recognize as a ghost, comes walking through and they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's the ghost. Or there's that other scene that just is an incredible scene where he's a little boy and he's up in some chair and he drops his crayon and somehow he, he gets down to the floor, which I think the description of how he actually gets off the chair to the floor is, is amazing. It, it really puts you in the body of a child, which is a thing most of us, I think, would have a hard time thinking about. He gets to the floor and they're like these hands, like hands on the floor grabbing his crayon. Things like that were going on in this character's past. And so I don't know if he was crazy from the time he was a little boy, or if there is some sense of reality to these things that were going on, but that is definitely his world. And he's bringing that world with him when he goes to Paris and just encountering all these things that are happening around him. Do you think that if Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet is a fairly direct introduction to how to see the world as a poet, then the notebooks are Rilke's way of showing how it might be done in the format of fiction? I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it as some kind of transformation of what he was thinking about. There's some idea up in his head of literature or poeticism, and it's coming out in these various forms, and one form is these letters, and then one form is this book. And what your question reminded me of uh, early on he's he's in the library mm -hmm. and you know and he's reading and he's surrounded by all these people who are reading 
and he just says this thing about, you know, I have a poet. I am sitting here reading a poet. What a fate. There are perhaps 300 people reading in this room, but it is impossible that each of them has a poet. God knows what they have. There can't be 300 poets, but just imagine my fate. I, perhaps the shabbiest of all these readers, and a foreigner, I have a poet. That sense of rarefied classification, that struck me as very personal, very of this book. And one of the reasons why I come to this book, just, you know, to, to see how this person looks at the world and to see what he makes of it. Because, I mean, it's just compelling even though there's there's not really a plot or anything to this book, you know, I just can't stop reading it because you know, each scene is just such a weird view of the world. You, you have to be swept up by all this. I thought of a couple things in regard to that. One of them is this really tired book review that you always read about how each page of this book demands to be reread or each word has poetry in it. And there are so few books I can think of where this is actually the case, where every sentence is giving you something. One of them, for instance, is uh, Pnin by Nabokov. You can pull out any line from that book and get a sense of the whole story. The other thing your response recalls, and many of your responses have recalled for me, is an early part of the book where Malta is passing through a hospital, seeing these rows and rows of beds, um, a seemingly infinite number of beds, and he says, It's like a factory, of course, with production so enormous. Each individual death is not made very carefully, but that isn't important. It's the quantity that counts. Who is there today who still cares about a well-finished death? No one. Even the rich, who could after all afford this luxury, are beginning to grow lazy and indifferent. The desire to have a death of one's own is becoming more and more rare. In a short time it will be as rare as life of one's own. Mm -hmm. And perhaps this book was an attempt to create a life that was completely its own. This book, he was working on this for eight years. It's like 250 pages. So there was a lot of working and reworking going on. These were physical things that he was carrying with him as he was kind of moving around France and whatnot. And to have all that history bound up in the creation of this makes it a unique thing. This is his early to mid-20s when he was writing this. All the things that must have been happening to him as a person, meeting Rodin, he was seeing all the great artists of Paris for the first time. I mean, all this stuff is happening to him. So I don't think he could have written it again if he had taken eight years in his 30s. It would have been a very different sort of thing. Let me ask you about one of the things I most enjoyed in this book, which was the equation, if I can put it that way, between the living and the dead, or the animate and the inanimate. So let me give you an example. It's midway through the book. He's walking down a familiar street, and he says to the reader, it wasn't surprising that from somewhere an influence emanated, which I had acknowledged for years, and which was trying to assert its old power again. In that part of the city there were certain corner windows, or porches, or lanterns, that knew a great deal about me, and threatened me with that knowledge. Later on, he talks directly about the phenomenon of living things, when he says he now understands them better, how they have their own lewd, and in some cases, lurid, lives. Those kettles that walk around steaming, those pistons that start to think, and the indolent funnel that squeezes into a hole for its pleasure. I, I love what's going on there, but what, what do you make of that? I guess you can go back to that famous quote of Henry James, who was it, try to be the kind of person on which nothing is lost. 
that's really the poetic mentality that every single thing he's trying to look at it from some other direction or, or he's he's trying to regard it as regarding him in some bizarre sort of way that's really what it requires to be a poet you have to be able to see all this stuff about the world and make all these observations that nobody else can make being inside that head you have some sense of how someone of these literary capabilities functioned and how he operated on a daily basis and i guess it's not a surprise that he was a little crazy because that's that's probably a very big burden to walk around with i think that would be a lot to have to live with Actually, i found a lot to have to read as well i found that sense of burden quite heavy it is i write a lot of notes and whatnot Mm-hmm. in the pages of these books and this book and I'm just reading through it again seeing all these exclamations that was kind of the feeling as I was reading this a very rapturous feeling i guess you're right from one perspective that can be really disorienting and i think in a lot of books it probably would have been but as i was reading this it was, i was in this whole groove and i was like wow oh that's amazing oh my god did you just say that that's incredible Oh, there's there's more to this, and that feeling kept reproducing itself. But there's so many scenes in this book where you just you'll never get to the bottom of them. When I read something like that as a reader, mm. I just you have to appreciate the ingenuity that it may be the stretch of five pages. I just have such a rich sense of potential from everything coming out of here. There are five different ways I can interpret this, and I'm never going to get to the bottom of this thing that he's made. And that to me, that that's great art. I'm with you there. So let's talk about a particular scene, if you don't mind, and see where your mind goes. All right, so there are tons of them in this book, definitely. But one that really popped out to me is this one that occurs a little less than halfway through. And he's remembering back when he was a child. He came from this wealthy family. There is these, this gigantic house that he lived in. The dimensions of it aren't entirely clear, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's big, it's wealthy. And that's kind of one of the nice things about this book. That, to me, is really true to childhood, where you have a sense of things, but the exact dimensions of everything in these childhood memories aren't entirely clear to me. So he encounters this room full of wardrobes. Mm -hmm. Wall to wall, there are all these doors that have all these clothes in them. And he starts trying on everything. All kinds of rich fabrics gowns, tuxedos. He starts to find things that are for masked balls, costumes, and that sort of thing. And he's just rapturously putting on all these clothes. And so it's this really strange, intense scene of trying on persona of the way clothes wear you and what they can make you into. And so all this stuff is being drawn into this whole scene in this really intense way. And then he gets to this closet where there's all this stuff for costume parties, and he finds these masks. And and masks, for the record, are just everywhere in this book. So he puts on the mask, and he has this really, really bizarre experience where, I mean, I don't know, I guess, what what did I write here? See, the, the margin note that I wrote here was, look how the situation turns, how the costume begins to strangle him. And now, maybe I'll just read a little bit of this. I was truly desperate now. I got up and looked for some object I could repair the damage with, but there was nothing. Besides, I was so hampered, in my vision and in every movement, 
that a violent rage flared up against my absurd situation, which I no longer understood. I began to pull at the knots of my costume, but that only made them tighter. The strings of the cloak were strangling me, and the material on my head was pressing down as if more and more were being added to it. Hot and furious, I rushed to the mirror and with difficulty watched, through the mask, the frantic movements of my hands. But the mirror had been waiting for just this. Its moment of revenge had come, while I, with a boundlessly growing anguish, kept trying to somehow squeeze out of my disguise, it forced me, I don't know how, to look up, and dictated to me an image, no, a reality, a strange, incomprehensible, monstrous reality that permeated me against my will, for now it was the stronger one, and I was the mirror. I stared at this large, terrifying stranger in front of me, and felt appalled to be alone with him. But at the very moment I thought this, the worst thing happened. I lost all sense of myself. I simply ceased to exist. For one second, I felt an indescribable, piercing, futile longing for myself. Then only he remained. There was nothing except him. I think that's just great, where he's looking at this image of himself in the mirror that isn't even him, trying to tear off these things and transform back into himself. That to me captures a lot of the energy of this book. And it's the whole idea of this scene that begins into this childish rapture, turns into this horror scene, and family members eventually find him in there and come to rescue him. And he's crying because he's so distraught by what's going on. And I, I love this detail. I was crying, but the mask didn't let the tears escape. They fell inside it, onto my face, and dried immediately, and fell again and dried. And finally I kneeled in front of them, as no one had ever kneeled before. I kneeled and lifted my hand toward them and begged, Take me out if you still can. Save me. But they didn't hear. There was no voice left in me. That whole idea of crying on the inside of the mask is just fantastic. So this whole scene, you know, you can read this in so many ways. And this is eight pages out of this book of like 260 pages. There's so much like that in there. Yeah, I think that's great. And I agree with the larger point, which is I think that trying to figure your way through this book is like trying to break down something that's resistant to dissolution. On the one hand, you're dealing with something, a book, that you're used to dissecting. But this one, this book, is somehow resistant to the tools that you have at hand. So let's say you cut into some part of it. You're trying to separate a limb from this book. The flesh and the bones and the vessels. But instead of your instrument cutting through it, it's all these things entangling your instrument. And in the end, you just have to throw your hands up. Because even though this thing, these words, are supposed to be at your command, they're in charge of you. Now, there's a scene I want to look at. It's where Malta's uncle, I think it's his uncle, but he does live in the kind of family where everyone's an uncle. So Malte's uncle, who's named Count Brahe, is talking to Malte about a person Malte takes to be another member of his sprawling family, someone he hasn't yet met. He called her Countess Sybil, and all his sentences ended as if he were inquiring about her health. Indeed, it appeared to me, I don't know why, as if he were talking about a very young girl in white, who might enter the room at any moment. I heard him speak in the same tone about our little Anna Sophie. And one day, when I asked who this young lady was, whom Grandfather seemed so particularly fond of, I was told that he was referring to the daughter of High Chancellor Conrad Reventlow, the second morganatic wife of Frederick IV, who had been reposing in one of the tombs at Roskilde for nearly a century and a half. So it's like Brahe is talking about a young girl, but in fact that young girl has been dead for a century and a half. 
and the way Rilke puts it, that she's been residing in a tomb for 150 years, is particularly good. Again, though, there's a compression of many of the recurring subjects of the book, not merely timelessness, but avoiding of time, the sense that what is imaginary is more important and makes more things happen than what is real. Before we go anywhere else, let me just jump back to that scene you were talking about. Yeah, please, go ahead. So Brahe is actually of the family of Tycho Brahe. Yeah, I was wondering I about that. And uh, in, in that quote you're reading, there's stuff about such and such king and... This occurs all throughout the book, and that to me is interesting, even though it's so much within the character's own head in a lot of ways. There's still a lot of Europe in here, and all this European history is kind of being leveraged into this narrative. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he brings in such a large scale, in some ways, to this private story? That's, that's a hard question to answer. If I was just going to take a stab at it right here, I feel like, you know, this is his world. And so, like, this is what constitutes him. It's an aristocratic world. It's a world that's very aware, probably, of its lineage and all of the historical generations that have gone into the family that he exists in. And it's probably a world where you, know, you have to account for that as you become an adult. You have to be aware of all that and know it all and be able to bring it into your conversation or your interactions. So I think it probably all felt very real to him in that way. I also wonder if he's suggesting by bringing in a name like Brahi, to go back to this example, that he, Malta, may be at the end of this line, but that all his forebears might have been like Malta in this key way. That it wasn't just him, but also they that might have had this sickness or disease or poetic lunacy, whatever you want to call it. And that therefore their notoriety, their success, their creations were also the product of that poetic lunacy. So this condition of Malta's, this scrambled, fragmented, anti-linear, self-divided, modern condition, may actually be part of the past, and therefore part of the future as well. And you hear these names like Brahi, and you revere them quite rightly, but maybe the person Brahi was not so different from this mad narrator before us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. You know, this is, this is not the way we're accustomed to thinking about it, but you've got to think, if, if you're Tycho Brahe, and your decision what to do with your life is to construct this, this observatory and look into the stars. I mean, no one else on Earth was doing that at that time, or, or a handful of people. That was, by definition, a crazy, bizarre endeavor to dedicate your life to. And now we think, oh, you know, Tycho Brahe, obviously, you know, he's a historical thing that's completely inevitable. But you know, that was not the way it was at the time, and probably Rilke. You know, he, he was feeling that same sort of craziness as he was setting off on his own endeavor that obviously made sense to very few people around him. Yes, I was thinking about the play as I read this book, although not ghosts. Because the novel was set among the Danish aristocracy, I was thinking about the character of Hamlet himself, in that Hamlet is known to others as being, let's say, unhinged, but that his manner of being unhinged is quite practiced and calculating. And I think you could make the case that Malta shares those qualities of seeming madness and deep calculation, or at least rumination over his madness. From this whole historical angle, another theme that you reminded me of as we were having this conversation, and is something that Gass talks about a lot in this essay he wrote called Rilke and the Requiem. He constructs this Hamlet theme where he's writing all these scenes about the book 
and each one he heads with the words enter ghost so he says like enter ghost and then he'll describe some kind of ghost from the malta book and construct this compendium of all these ghosts he's linked to a very particular historical ghost the ghost that occurs in hamlet that he thinks is a historical foundation in some important way of this book that we're reading so that's gas who did that yeah, yeah, I guess. And it, it's a wonderful essay. Uh, if anyone really enjoys this book, I would recommend reading that essay then. The Ghost Angle, that's, that's totally new to me. Actually, most of what we're talking about right now is new to me. I think this book really repays discussion. I mean, every book does, but this book really, really does. As, as a critic, I feel the same way. A lot of times I'll read something and... I'll have the sense there's something here, some kind of emanation of potential from a given book. And that's often the most maddening book to write about, but it's also the most interesting. I remember when I was reading My Two Worlds by the Argentine author Sergio Haifek. That's a really slim book. It's barely 100 pages. And I was just reading this thing, and I got that sense of potential, and I was like... You know, how do I find my way into this? How do I even begin to try to write about this book? And it can be very foreboding. You feel like you're kind of off on the margins of this space that you want to enter, but you don't know how to get through those gates. And then you find one thing that you can begin to talk about. And you start talking about that one thing, and it leads you to something else. And you begin to construct this framework for your interpretation of that book. That to me, as a reader and a critic, that's what I like the best. And those are the most interesting books, the ones that are going to live the longest on your shelf and permit you, you know, the most expansive explorations. You know, it's not the book where you finish reading it and you know exactly how you want to tackle it. Those can be interesting, but those books tend to only give rise to maybe one or two interpretations. And a book like this, yeah, you can keep rereading this for ages. While the interpretation of almost any book benefits from discussion with another person, this was one book in particular where, for me at least, talking about it was necessary to try to get any kind of grasp on it, and getting a handle on this book made me appreciate it significantly more. For that, my great thanks go to Scott Esposito. I also wanted to mention that Scott is publishing an essay on the novel Elizabeth Costello by the South African novelist now living in Australia, J.M. Kutsia. Scott's essay looks specifically at the penultimate chapter of that book, At the Gates, as a revision of Kafka's short story, Before the Law. And this is not the first time that Kutsia draws inspiration from Kafka. The essay will be published in Southerly, an Australian journal. I also asked Scott what he's looking forward to reading, and he mentioned two books set to come out in July. Works by Edouard Levé, the author famous for suicide, a novel completed just before its author, Levé, himself committed suicide, and William T. Volman's Last Stories, which is Volman's first work of fiction in a while. Right then, there you go. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of the much-anticipated A Heart So White by Javier Marias. In the meantime, please feel free to send me notes, nasty and nice, either via Twitter, at BurningBooksPod, or email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. 
there are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. Goblins.